My name is Abby and I'm the voice behind the Evolving Love Project. In this podcast, my husband and I deep dive into the topics of non-monogamy and polyamory, drawing from our experiences of being consensually non-monogamous for almost a decade. And my name is Liam. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, curious or anything in between, we invite you to join us for this conversation. Let's begin. Would you feel open-hearted and accepting maybe one day one of your children being in a polyamorous relationship? King David, King Solomon had multiple wives. Does it make you doubt the original text? Does it make you think, is this the right thing to be following a text written then? And this is the million-dollar question, right? That's why I'm here, isn't it? Can I be a Christian and live any way I want? Dr. Constantine Campbell is Professor and Research Director at the Sydney College of Divinity and previously served as Professor of New Testament Studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago and Moore Theological College in Sydney. His doctorate is in Ancient Greek Language and Linguistics. Campbell is the author of 17 books with focus on Ancient Greek, New Testament interpretation and the Apostle Paul. His book, Paul and Union with Christ, was the 2014 Christianity Today Book of the Year in Biblical Studies. His latest releases are The Letter to the Ephesians and Jesus v. Evangelicals, a biblical critique of a wayward movement. Constantine, thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. We've really been looking forward to it. Thanks for having me here. I've been looking forward to chatting with you guys. I wanted to just start off this conversation by reading a beautiful quote from your book, Jesus v. Evangelicals. You say, I agree that God is the creator of marriage and that he intended it for our common good. But this also means it is a gift of creation for all people, like the sun. In this sense, Christians can no more claim that marriage belongs to us than we can claim to own the sun. If that's true, then why do Christians insist on defining the rules of marriage for everyone else? Mm. I thought that was so beautiful. Oh, thank you. To start off with, can you share with us a little bit about why you decided to write Jesus v. Evangelicals? I guess it it started as a kind of rumble in my belly that uh, (laughs) began a number of years ago. And I suppose, um, well, a bit of background. So I became a Christian in evangelical kind of setting. I was I was actually raised Greek Orthodox, but didn't really participate in church or anything like that until my university days. And for the first time, I was exposed to what the Bible actually teaches because, you know, you can go to church all your life and never really hear what the Bible says. And there are a lot of people who identify as Christians who never read the Bible or really don't have much of an understanding of it. And the thing that clicked it over for me in the evangelical scene was that the Bible was really front and center. And the Bible is what blew my mind. And I was like, whoa, it says that? What, really? You know, and it's so intriguing and mysterious and and yet also at the same time feels so relevant and f- full of so much wisdom. So I, I sort of like basically did a deep dive into that and, you know, eventually sort of ended up becoming a Christian. And then for several years, well, decades really, uh, you know, I would identify as an evangelical kind of Christian. Things changed a bit when I moved to America and um, I was teaching at uh, an evangelical seminary. I was as a New Testament professor and and that was a fantastic seminary. But um, I, I felt like I, I really started to see and understand evangelical culture in America, you know, much more 
accurately than you do from afar. You know, it's like that with American politics here as well. You kind of get snapshots and caricatures in the news and and that sort of thing. But when you're there on the ground, as you guys would know from living there, uh, it's a totally different understanding and experience. So I was there when Donald Trump was elected president. Mm. And, you know, like the rest of the world, I couldn't really believe it. And then I couldn't believe that, you know, he really was voted in on the back of white American evangelicals. Mm. And at first I resisted that and thought that can't really be true. You know, there are people that call themselves evangelicals for cultural reasons or whatever, but they're not, they're not real because no real evangelical could really like support someone like Donald <laughs> Trump, right? This is literally mm. what I thought. And so were a number of other people that I knew in America at the time. But actually what we discovered in the months following was that no, a lot of people that we would call real evangelicals had thrown their full support behind Donald Trump and, and continued to do so. Mm. And when he ran for office again, even after a term of seeing what he was like, and I assume this won't offend any listeners uh, of your podcast, but you know, I thought it was a total train wreck. Mm. Uh, even knowing that, the numbers went up in support. So up to like 85% of mm. white evangelicals were supporting Donald Trump for re-election. This together with a number of other little issues that I'd sort of become aware of along the way of the number of years that I'd been an evangelical, issues that I felt like, you know, there's this really black and white position on X, but mm. if you read the Bible, it's much more nuanced and it, it's much more messy and um, and there are certain ancient cultures and contexts and all this sort of stuff that, you know, as a Bible scholar, you, you know, this is, this is sort of my bread and butter. And so I'm reading the Bible in this sort of relatively, you know, sophisticated ways, academic kind of ways. And yet the popular level of evangelicalism is promoting these positions as though there's no nuance or mm. taking things out of context or really down on certain things that they see as really pernicious kind of problems or sins and yet other things that the Bible sees as way worse mm. are permitted and um, accepted and no one bats an eyelid, you know. And so I guess I, for a number of years, was a kind of quiet critic of evangelicalism from the inside. And whenever I was teaching students or if I had the opportunity to preach in church or whatever, I would try to sort of like, you know, unpick some of these things a little bit. And a lot of people were receptive to that. Um, some perhaps were not. But, um, but it all really came to a head with, when my um, marriage ended and I experienced the sort of judgmentalism from Christians, many of whom I'd known for 20, 25 years, mm -hmm. counted as my closest friends, or just broad scale like, parts of the church or, or whatever, that I, I was really shocked because, you know, I, I, I'd hear from people who were not Christians, you know, the wider world outside, oh, Christians are really judgmental, especially those evangelicals. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, sure, some of the idiot ones are <laughs> like, you know, people who on TV or radio and they, they're sort of like, you know, it's like, but, but real evangel normal evangelicals like me, we're not judgmental people, you know, uh, and, and the churches that I've been involved in were full of 
really beautiful people, really gracious, loving, kind, accepting people. But then when my divorce ended, I was shocked. I mean, my marriage ended. I was shocked that actually I'd experienced the, the sort of rough end of that sort of judgmentalism that did, in my experience, exist. And again, I, I wouldn't say that that's, it's not universal by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a lot of people in my life, Christians, who were perfectly lovely and, and very supportive and kind. Uh, but there were enough out there that just sort of made me realize, whoa, it's not just people out there saying that. It's, it's there. It's real. And so that was, for me, the tipping point where I thought, I've got to do something with all these bits and pieces that are bothering me about evangelicalism and, and in particular American evangelicalism. And that's what the book is really directed at. But it, it does address issues that affect evangelicals in Australia and the UK and other places as well. I sort of felt at the time, well, with my divorce, I'm kind of burnt down in that world. So I might as well put it on paper and try to do something good with it. Uh, because in the past, I wouldn't have dared to write a book like that because it would have burnt me down. So mm. so mm. that's kind of, sorry, a long-winded answer to uh, how, how I came about writing that book. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it's such a, an incredible thing to kind of experience that wanting to be so accepting as a religious person and then feeling this kind of lack of acceptance within your own community yeah. must have been really difficult. Did you find that it was uh, people outside of the church that were coming to support you through that time? Did you feel like this, it was almost like more like uh, people who aren't necessarily religious coming to, to your back because they understood, you know, the gravity of what you're feeling and potentially that kind of like excommunication? Yeah, I, I did experience that. Um, again, I did experience love and support from a number of Christians, but the people who I felt like really had my back were uh, musicians, musician friends, because uh, I'm a jazz musician as well. And um, they were sort of unquestioning in their loyalty and support mm-hmm. and friendship. Uh, and and my family, my wider family in particular, who were were very loving and supportive, and it it was um, what's the right way to put it? Disappointing, I guess, that the Christian community I felt as a block kind of let me down. I even felt betrayed mm. by some people in particular, and I'm like, you know, like don't we teach that? God loves us and that, you know, he forgives our failures and we often Mm. fall short of his ideals for us, which are meant for our good. And God is compassionate, merciful. Why are you being such a judgmental jerk, Mm. you know? Uh, And yeah, it was disappointing. And since I've written the book, Man, people have been coming out of the woodwork saying, yeah, that was my experience. I'm so mm. glad. I never mm. would have said this out loud, but I'm so glad you said this. And mm. and it it's, it's actually seems a very widespread phenomenon. And um, I guess I want to say as someone who still identifies as Christian, but not necessarily as an evangelical anymore, we need to do better. And I feel like we're failing the world <laughs> because from like supporting a sociopathic, narcissistic, Trump, <laughs> mm. misogynist, racist, the list could go on, lying, mm. et cetera, et cetera, from, from full-throated support of someone like that 
down to just the regular way you treat people who um, maybe get divorced or have a, a different worldview, mm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's, it's, it does not reflect what is really attractive about Christianity for me. And the most attractive thing about Christianity for me is the person of Jesus and, and the Bible. The two things together are like, that's what keeps me in because the Bible's mm. incredible and people who critique it without having read it, you know, just don't know what they're talking about. Um, but Jesus, you know, everyone has some knowledge of, of Jesus and he's just an incredible, compelling figure. And his message is beautiful. Like, um, love your enemy. Like, let's just go with that. Mm. Pray for those who persecute you. I mean, that's challenging. It's mm. still challenging for me. But it's it's an incredible challenge that makes us better people, you know, if we take it seriously and, and, and enables us to heal the rifts in our communities and to choose peace rather than war, uh, to choose forgiveness rather than retribution, you know, all this, all this sort of stuff. If we live by this, some very simple parts of Jesus' teaching, like it's, it's so compelling. And I feel like the way evangelicals have been um, mutes that message uh, and conveys the idea that we, we actually care more about other things mm. like judging people, trying to force people, coerce people to live a certain way, get political power, mm. um, et cetera, et cetera. I've read in your book, you talk about, you know, pride Yep. And the sins and, you know, how there are certain sins that are more sort of demonized than others and, you know, hypocrisy mm. and things like that. And just hearing you speak now and hearing, you know, these evangelical friends that you had that sort of chose to hang on to their belief system and, mm. you know, their ideals and mm. they would have had their own sense of pride around, you know, how they, yeah. you know, their thoughts on divorce and sort of missing the point of, the, the human experience of actually yeah. being in a relationship and and what that could look like for you with it mm. sort of, you know, coming apart. You know, of course, I don't know the ins and outs, but it was really interesting reading about your thoughts on the sins mm. and pride and, you know, in comparison to sexual yeah. sexuality. Yeah. Well, th this is the one one of the things that bothered me for a long time within, within evangelicalism, uh, that there is a sort of unspoken code of acceptable and what I call unacceptable sins and, you know, marriage failure, divorce, uh, adultery, basically anything related to sex or marriage, that's definitely on the unacceptable list. Mm. And But all sorts of things are acceptable, meaning, you know, Christians might say, well, it's not, pride's not good or greed's not good or, you know, materialism, those things are not good. But you're not really going to judge anyone for it because it's like, well, come on, you know, mm -hmm. like we live in the affluent West. Of course, you can have a big house and a, mm. you know, nice car and stuff like that. And, you know, and, and of course you should put lots of money into your 401k and your, you know, and, and, and your stocks and bonds and, you know, and I'm just like, and, and at the same time, uh, especially in America, not exclusively, but especially in America, these big mega churches promoting leaders who are celebrity cult leaders who are often, again, I want to nuance this. Some of them are really great people, mm. but a number of, enough of them 
are really proud and mm-hmm. arrogant and 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 sort of belligerent but they get a free pass they mm. stay on their platform they get thousands of followers and i'm like have you read the bible dude cuz like the mm. bible is really down on sin on on pride <laughs> pride is like the the number one sin in the bible and that, that's the case I, that i make um in the book it's actually pride is the most deadly sin because it's actually pride that stops you from being able to connect properly with God and it and it stops you from being able to follow Jesus who encouraged his disciples to walk in humility mm. and gentleness and kindness. You can't do that if you're proud, mm. you know, and you can't really trust God, which is at the heart of what Christianity is about, like to trust God if you're proud, you know, if you're completely self-reliant and think you don't need anything, mm. you can't. You can't actually be a Christian mm. because at the heart of it is it, it requires a, a self-humbling to say, I, I do need someone outside myself. I do need a higher power. Um, I do need this relationship. Um, I'm not fully autonomous. So, yeah, so that was kind of the point. And I, I just wish <laughs> Christians would, would wake up and realize it's pride that's killing the church. It's Sure, these other things are not great, you know, like marriage failure. No one thinks that's great. You know, it's it's not ideal. Um, and people fail and people make mistakes. But but God is a big God and a God of forgiveness and love. But mm. but pride is the thing that's really killing mm. churches. Well, as non-monogamous people, I guess it's interesting because we get a chance to kind of create our own set of sins. Mm-hmm. And for us, sexuality, being, we, we don't see it as sinful. Um, sure. So we have this kind of luxury of, of that being, you know, I guess maybe potentially not even on the list. Yep. So do you feel that there's a hierarchy of, if you were to put pride at the top of mm-hmm. the, the sins, how do you view sexuality within that? Good question. Um, and I don't want to really promote a list except to say <laughs> pride's at the top. And then I'm not going to make it. <laughs> adjudications about what comes next or anything like that. But, you know, um, I think to answer that, we sort of probably need like a little bit of unpacking of the big picture of the Bible a little bit, which is, you know, the the sort of biblical um, teaching, if you like, on um, sex is in the context of marriage. So the second chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter two, you know, and it uses this sort of semi-poetic language and all that. This is not really important about the questions about the historicity. It's really making a theological point. That's all I'll say about that. Otherwise, we could get into the weeds on that. <laughs> but, you know, Genesis 2, 24 talks about, you know, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And that's sort of like the defining statement um, mm. about marriage in the Bible and everything sort of builds on that. Like Jesus quotes that and it's implied by Paul and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, basically the biblical position, and it, it's a little hard to say biblical position because like I said before, the Bible's actually really messy and nuanced. And and if you try to abstract rules out of it, they're, they're always, you're always getting it a little bit wrong if you do that because mm. the Bible's more messy than that. But, um, but basically that becomes the principle um, that creates a kind of ideal. Mm. Um, and I guess most Christians would say, you know, God has designed us for a certain way. Uh, and so the ideal is like living according to that design is going to be best for you. Um, and one of the misconceptions I think about 
Christianity, or at least biblical Christianity, is that you know there's this code of ethics or code of morality that's sort of black and white and set in stone, and you're a good person or a bad person based on whether you. It's it's really not like that at all. It's more like God's the creator. He loves us. He's designed us. He made us, and he wants us to flourish. He wants us to be to to be happy. You know, he wants us to be have good relationships with each other in our families and communities and with him. Um, and so what we call rules or morality, or whatever, is actually more, they're more like, you know, well, the maker is kind of saying, like, it's better if you live this way, because this mm. is how you're designed. And this is how I've set it up. So it's going to work for you to flourish and be happy and have a good you know, marriage and have a good life and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's more for our good, in other words, rather than a sort of policeman with a set of rules saying, you're really bad people, you've broken all my rules and I'm going to come and get you. Mm. You know, it's mm. much more, the picture is a, a loving father God who's like, you know, wants the best for his children. Mm. And just like with our children, you guys are parents and I'm a parent as well. Sometimes you make rules for your kids, especially when they're really young, because they, they don't understand nuance. And you, my rule is don't play in the street, okay? Uh, and the kid's like, oh, you're so black and white. It's like, you know, you're just a policeman with these rules telling me what to do. But I'm like, the only reason that rule exists is so you don't get hit by a car. It's for your benefit, mm. right? And I might, you know, if my kid was younger, um, you know, get mad at them a bit if they break the rule. But that's just to, again, so that, you know, they're safe. Um, when they get older, you know, and become adults, young adult teenagers or young adults, they understand the complexity a bit more, right? And they can say, oh, it's probably not good to get hit by a car, so I'll avoid playing in the street. But I can cross the street by myself and I can watch out for those dangers. Right? But when they're younger. So I guess all this, it's an extended analogy to say that, like, the so-called rules or morality or whatever that mm. that um, you know is is part of the perception of Christianity is actually like what does what does God think is good for us and there's an ideal but also the Bible is extremely realistic that we will regularly continually and almost never live up to the ideal mm. and so then there's all this nuance about okay well. Well, then what's best? Like, how do you recover a situation that's gone bad? Um, you know, how, how do you live this way and that? So anyway, um, sorry, it's a super long-winded. No, just, it's fascinating. Just, We're okay. loving it. Well, just so sort of setting up the scaffolding to try to answer that question mm. that, um, you know, according to the Bible, sex is really designed, we believe, um, for a, a marriage relationship and that, so we believe that's where it works best. And but the Bible acknowledges that's that ideal is not going to happen all the time. Um, but like a parent who says, you know, um, don't play in the street because bad things will happen, you know, that th that sort of morality around um sexual behavior is is sort of again for our best interest. At least that's the intention. Mm. Right. Mm. So it's not so much you're bad and evil because you've broken this rule. It's like you're going to um, not live according to the ideal. All right, you have the freedom to do that. Um, but um, things may not work out for you. There may be consequences. There may be unintended, uh, an unintended downside. Um, and that's 
that's really the wisdom of the Bible, I think. You know, at least that's what the Bible's trying to convey mm. to us. Um, so I wouldn't want to abstract out of the Bible these black and white rules, which a lot of Christians do. And a lot of them do it because that, that's been inherited. Mm. That's what they've been taught. But you don't actually get that if you read the Bible in all its messiness and detail. You get a more nuanced sort of like thoughtful, well, you know, in this situation, in that situation sort of approach, which means it, it's really hard to be super black and white. You're saying that, you know, the marriage was created or from God, you know, for the good of the people. Yeah. But that, of course, would vary yeah. depending on the people within the marriage. Absolutely. Because we're all different. And what might be good for one couple might not be good for another couple, depending yep. on our needs, our desires, um, in our case, whether or not we feel compersion or not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think if Liam and I did not feel compersion for each other and we were having and we're in this non-monogamous relationship, we would really struggle. Mm -hmm. There would be a lot of hurt involved yep. or it would be something that we probably wouldn't be engaging with at all in the first place because it wouldn't be possible for us. Mm. You know, I can't help but think to the the Ten Commandments, mm -hmm. you know, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. You know, I'm interested to know in that scenario, if people are non-monogamous and there is respect and honesty and openness yep. and compersion mm -hmm. and these positives where there's no lying or it's not an mm -hmm. infidelitous mm -hmm. situation, is it possible to, you know, engage in this non-monogamous activity you know, under that sort of um, that guidance from God, mm. as long as nobody's being hurt, like if nobody's mm. being harmed, mm. then is there an issue with that? Yeah, well, I think um, like it's super interesting to hear about you know how you guys think about non-monogamy, and I, I really respect the the openness and the trust that you you have and you exhibit, and that that's really important. And I can really see how that would be a great. Um, advantage compared to a sort of monogamous situation where someone secretly, you know, is drawn to someone outside their marriage, but has, feels like they have to, you know, repress that or, mm. um, not be honest about that or, uh, you know, break the marriage covenant and actually go outside in secret and with lying and all that sort of stuff. So I can, I can totally see how like, from from that point of view, it, it makes sense. Um, it's for me. Um, it, I think it really comes down to as, as a as a Christian, and I still am a Christian. There are all sorts of things in life where I I guess I need to ask myself: Am I going to go with my own wisdom, or am I going to trust the wisdom that that God has offered? Mm. Um, as revealed in the in the Bible, um, and that that's an ongoing challenge for me personally, and for every Christian who's honest about it. There are always things in the Bible that you're like, "I don't believe in that," or "Gee, that's really doesn't fly today," or all this sort of stuff. I mean, and I get that, you know. So the the I think the the key Christian conviction for me here is not so much what's right or wrong, or what are the rules, or um, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's really, am I, am I going to put myself in again, that position of humility that says, or oh, maybe I don't know the best on this issue. Mm. And I'm prepared to admit I'm not omniscient. Like I don't know everything. 
Mm. Um, and and coincidentally, this is this, I think that the one of the key reasons why Jesus says in Matthew seven, "Do not judge." This is why we shouldn't. To get back to that theme of judgmentalism, you shouldn't judge because a well a you're not God, and that's His job, and b you don't know everything, unlike God. So you actually don't know what was the cause of my marriage breakup or, mm-hmm. and you don't know what's in my inner thoughts and what my inner desires are. And so it'd be really stupid to judge someone in a sort of condemnatory kind of judgment um, without all the facts. So Jesus says, well, don't do it. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. don't do it. Mm-hmm. But that takes a sort of humility and trust, which is um, for me to say, I don't, I don't know everything. I don't have all the facts. I can't see into the future. Um, I can't see into the dynamics of your relationship or anyone else's. Um, and so um, I'm not going to pretend to say I know best. Um, and that's where I come down on these sorts of issues. It's like I, I do think the Bible, while it's messy and nuanced and not black, as black and white as a lot of people think, some things are pretty clear and sometimes those things – you know, I'd be like, well, I guess if it was me, I wouldn't go that way. I'd go a different way. Um, but I have to ask, if if this relationship with God is real, who's going to be God in this relationship? Is it going to be me or is it going to be God? You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and so that's where I come down on it. It's like, yeah, I can totally, I totally get like your kind of marriage works for you. Um, and I'm happy for you. Like, that's mm. great. And you get no judgment from me. Um, or criticism, as long as no one, you know, is being harmed. Mm. Uh, it's none of my business, for one. Mm. And if you're happy, I'm happy that you're happy. But I also acknowledge that at the same time, um, if I do believe that the Bible comes from God, um, then th- there is an ideal where, you know, um, sex is within the marriage relationship. Uh, and I might maybe agree or not agree that that's the best thing. But at that point, as a Christian, I'm going to um, submit to God's wisdom on that rather than my own. Mm. Um, and that, not just in that area, but all sorts of areas where I'm like, oh, I know better than God on this. And mm. I'm like, well, you know, I have a choice to make. Do I really? Or am I going to go my own way? And you can do that. Like you can just say, oh, I'm going to put God on the shelf. And lo- obviously lots of people do that. Mm. Um and I understand that. Uh, but for me, it's an ongoing wrestle in life. It's like, uh, I don't really want to put God on the shelf. I do believe God's there. I do believe God loves me. I do believe I have a relationship with God. And I'm compelled by the figure of Jesus really deeply. Um, and so in that relationship, I, I'm going to submit, you know, and say, well, you know, I'll go with God's wisdom. Mm. So that's kind of where I <laughs> land on that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not saying I know better. It's in fact it's saying the opposite that of that I know better. It's saying, well, I I don't think I know. I don't think I have the answers. So that's why I defer to God's wisdom. So if we're deferring to God's wisdom and we're kind of viewing ourselves from a Christian perspective as kind of these yeah. like everyone's got inherent sin within them yeah. and all that kind of stuff, what is the threshold for the amount of forgiveness that you can receive from God? Yeah. Because there's there's people and we know them within our community who've come to conversation evenings who are yeah. trying to wrestle with this sense of can we be Christians and also yeah. be non-monogamous? Yeah. Now, 
in the view, if you view it as a very black and white um, kind of way of thinking, like obviously anything outside of the marriage is is yep. is not the, the the done thing in terms of what Jesus and what God would would want. But if there is that sense, um, if someone were to make repeated kind of indiscretions from yep. a Christian perspective. Is there always that sense that God will still welcome them back with loving arms? Like yeah. if they're comfortable with making those, those, uh, you know, those movements outside of their marriage, whether it's, you know, hooking up with other people or with the, with the um, consent of, of their partner, is there a way that God will always forgive them and, and still let them be religious at mm. the same time? Well, I guess I would say my understanding of um, the teaching of the Bible is there's really nothing you can do that is beyond the forgiveness of God. The only reason you would not receive God's forgiveness is if you don't want it. No one is beyond God's forgiveness. I mean, that's a pretty strong and clear teaching of the Bible and the teaching of Jesus. Um, but the other way to look at it is that what we're talking about is a relationship, right? A relationship with God through Jesus. And, um, in any sort of relationship, there is this sort of reciprocity, you know, like um, if you've got a friend who um, you invite over for dinner, you know, every month, say, and you put a lot of effort into that, and you re- but they never invite you over for dinner. Mm. Um, at some point you're like, something feels a bit one-sided in this relationship. Mm. And and so there is a there is a reciprocity. I mean, all God's gifts to us, including forgiveness, are sort of in a sense free. You know, they, He gives because He wants to, not mm. because you've earned it, right? It's like a gift that you give a child just because you want to mm. give it to them, right? Mm. But the act of gift giving actually is a is a really important way that relationships grow. So I might give something to you because I want to, mm. but then you might reciprocate at some other point and that reinforces the relationship further. You know what I mean? And, and it goes like that. Like we, we're in this, this sort of um, pattern of mutual giving. Mm. Um, and, and I think the relationship with God is a bit like that, that he gives things for free, like his love, compassion, sunshine, you know, and forgiveness. It's for free. There's nothing you need to do to earn it or to get it. You can't buy it. Um, but that's not just for the sake of like wiping the slate and now you're good. It's actually for the sake of an ongoing relationship with him. Mm. And so he's actually like the forgiveness is a way of sort of like clearing the air in a relationship. Like you, you might need to forgive one another once in a while for something here mm. or there. And what that does is it clears the air. It sort of re renews the relationship and enables you to go forward Right. Whereas without the forgiveness, there's this sort of roadblock that's that's sort of getting in the way of your intimacy or getting in the way of your, you know, trust or something like that. Um, and so I feel like for a Christian, it's a similar sort of thing with God that um, there's this ongoing relationship. And 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 my sort of decisions and the way I want to live, if I want to do those things in a way that enhances that relationship, that continues to grow the relationship, then I want to do things that I know are pleasing to God mm. um, rather than things that, you know, piss him off, to be honest, right? Um, like in any relationship. So I guess that's the way I would want to set it up when you're getting to the question, like, can you be a Christian? And this is the mm. million dollar question, right? That's why I'm here, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. Can I be a Christian and 
live any way I want? Um, and I think the answer, because of the things I've said, is sort of yes and sort of no. Hmm. Um, sort of yes in the sense that whatever you've done or will do um, does not put you outside the scope of God's love, right? And that's the big thing I want to say. And that's the, the big thing that Jesus says, and that's the big message of Christianity. Hmm. doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done or what you will do in the future – God loves you and he's for you and he wants you in his family. The end, right? Mm. I could just leave mm. it there. But but the key part of that description there is the family element because when you're in a family, then all of a sudden you have these obligations to each other mm. um, to maintain and, and grow the relationship. Um, and so it's not my position to say whether someone who wants to live in a non-monogamous way can be a Christian. That's not for me to judge or to say. But what I will say, and for any Christians listening, is you need to weigh up um, according to your conscience, um, you know, what is going to best enhance your relationship with God. Mm. Um because if the way you're choosing to live it goes against your conscience or is creating a roadblock with your relationship with God, then that's that's sort of the heart of the issue. That's really the heart of the issue that I would want to talk about. And you guys are about relationships, right? Mm. So Christianity is about relationships too. And that's why it's so dangerous to have black and white rules and lists of stuff that make it sound like Christianity is just morality. It's not morality at all, right? The, there are moral elements to it, but it, at the heart of it, it's about relationship. It's about relationship with the creator of the universe and everyone else, you know, uh, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, but what that means is the way it impacts our morality is to question like, am I doing things that are going to interrupt or damage those relationships mm. or not? Hearing you speak... And from a non-monogamous perspective, hearing you talk about the relationship to God and the relationship to a partner or a spouse and the importance of this and how they're both such meaningful relationships and you want to honour them both. Yeah. To me listening, it kind of sounds like a little bit of a throuple. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like no, it, sounds, no it sounds like there's, you know, for Christian marriages – there's three, yeah. there are three energies mm. in the marriage. Mm. It's not, and, you know, put the sex aside. There's yep. three big energies here, um, which is really fascinating because there's a lot of balancing with that. And this is something that we talk about often, you know, in non-monogamous relationships, there are multiple people to care for, to yep. honour, to yep. respect, yep. to balance. Yep. Um, you know, there's yourself. Mm. And there are the other people that you're in connection with. So hearing you speak about this, I'm connecting with it because it's to me, you know, we've had these conversations, but it's been in a more human situation. You know, God is a is something, you know, beyond us and more energetic, but emotionally very present in Christian marriages. Like even at marriage, Christian marriages, they often talk about like, the closer the two of you get to God, the closer you'll get to each other. Very you know, interesting. Sort of, sort of like, like the, that sort of thing. And that's really interesting because for Liam and I, the fact that we are open and we're not, we, we've sort of welcomed the energy of other people into our relationship and it has made us closer in a way. We can talk about anything. Yeah. We really see each other for who we are. Yeah. Nothing's off topic. Yeah. And that 
by its nature brings us incredibly close together. Yeah. So I really resonate with what you're saying, mm. but just from a very different perspective. Mm. And I also want to talk about um, and have your thoughts on, you know, the sort of evolution of a person as far mm. as their own development mm. as we mature and grow. Mm you know, into ourselves, you know, when Liam and I got together, we were in our early twenties. Mm. And so we're on this journey together through mm. life. We're changing and we're shifting. And, you know, some of the promises that we might've made to each other in those early days of our relationship have changed because we've changed as people. Sure. And I'm always interested in, you know, what can happen in, you know, Christian Christian marriages when there are people who are quite young mm. uh, making promises and commitments mm. to each other, but also yeah. making promises and commitments on behalf of future versions mm. of themselves yeah. who they have not met yet yep. because we do change. Absolutely. And, you know, over the years I've seen these relationships, you know, dissolve. And, you know, I'm interested in how much room there is for sort of self-awakening mm. within a Christian marriage mm. yeah. when we are sort of, when there are these sort of set, well, not so much set rules. You've just said that so much is up for interpretation as well, but I'm really interested in that and how mm. that, and how that can look for people yeah. maybe from your own experience. Yeah. I think, um, you know, as organic beings, um, the growing and changing happens for everyone and, in I think the ideal in a relationship, Christian or otherwise, is um, that you grow together. And I think that that's kind of the ideal. Um, the ideal would be that as you navigate the twists and turns of life, that you will sort of become, you know, like a, a the branches of a vine woven together. And so you change, but you change together. And, and that's a really lovely thing. Um, unfortunately, it's not the reality a lot of the time um, and people grow apart or they grow in different directions or, or whatever. And I think, you know, a, a Christian perspective would be, well, do what you can to nurture that growing in the same direction to grow together mm. rather than to grow apart. But you don't have to be a Christian to want that, right? I mm. mean, that's just common sense. It's just part of our humanity mm. that you can, if you feed, if you plant, if you water a plant, it's going to grow and be healthy. And if you neglect it, it's going to wither and die. And that, that's true for any relationship, you know. So so I guess, yeah, there's the ideal um, that you would navigate change together and, and, and grow in whatever direction together. But sometimes that's not possible and that's just, that's life. Yeah. A common thing that happens often in relationships that we see through our conversation evenings is is women who, you know, start to explore their bisexuality. Mm -hmm. So say that would happen within a religious context and a framework. So this sense of growing and a sense of nurturing that growth together really needs to happen within that context. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what how is that is that a is that a bridge that can't be crossed within a, a religious context, or is that something that from a Christian framework you have to just suppress? that and figure out another way to grow yeah what's your what would be your view on that yeah it's a really good question and I guess I, I probably should have started with this um, at the beginning but there is no one Christianity like like there's so many versions of it mm. uh, as much as we might 
wish that they were, you know, some people might wish that we were a little more like on the same tracks. But the reality is there's a really big spectrum of views within among people who call themselves Christians. And um, of course, some parts of the church would claim to be more authentically Christian than others. And mm. some parts would, would want to be more at the center of that or claim to be, and everyone else is like, off the track or, or whatever. But the reality is we dif- disagree about a whole range of things. There's a lot of, um, you know, um, nuance and, and room to disagree on on a whole range of issues, including, I think, polyamory. Like, I mean, the, um, um, you know, polygamy has been debated through the history of the church. It's not as black and white as... Um, a lot of Christians would make out. In fact, it's not even black and white in the Bible. There's no explicit condemnation of polygamy in the Bible. And some of the the key figures of um, the Bible, like King David, King Solomon, had multiple wives, and they're not condemned for it. You know, um, and so uh, now, as I mentioned before, there is, however, this ideal. Right, but there's the reality that things are more messy, and 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 so what's that? What that has meant is in the history of the church, um, there've there've been debates, you know, among Christians with differing differing perspectives on these sorts of issues. Now, usually, what hap- has happened is, um, out of the messiness of it, eventually through the debates, a more crystallized like conclusion is reached. And generally in, in what we call Orthodox Christianity, which is like the most, the the mainstream Christianity of 2000 years, um, the crystallized position is monogamy, you know? Um, but I, I guess what I want to say is that's out of a process of kind of extraction from a more messy picture that you see in the Bible. And even, um, Martin Luther, you know, he was the Catholic monk that in the 16th century rebelled against the Catholic church and became the father of the Protestant reformation. I'm a Protestant. So, you know, there are 500 million Protestants in the world today. They Mm. all, they all sort of trace their theological lineage back to Martin Luther. Martin Luther said he can't condemn polygamy because it's not explicitly condemned in the Bible. Mm. It's not. And like, when you discover that you're like, wait, what? Martin (laughs) Luther said that? Are you serious? (laughs) But, and it wasn't saying, oh, like just go willy nilly at it or whatever, but he acknowledged in some situations, like maybe um, in a marriage um, where for whatever reason, they're not able to, you know, have a conjugal relationship. um, Then maybe, you know, a man will take another wife. Um, but he said, according to his conscience, because he, he said, like, it's not a clear issue from the Bible. And I think that's refreshing. Like for someone who is such a firebrand critic of medieval Catholicism and, and really devoted to the teaching of the Bible, he could read the Bible. He translated the whole New Testament into German for the very first time. So he, he really knew the text, right? Mm. Um, uh, he, he was able to honestly say, there's not a clear position on this. And so he's sort of a model for me in this kind of conversation, like even if uh, some Christians are going to throw stones at me for saying this sort of stuff, but it's not it's not as clear cut as um, it's often presented. I think what is clear, as I said before, is an ideal. And I think that ideal is there because, you know, because um, God has set us up to thrive 
this way. You know, mm. that's the claim of the Bible. Um, but also acknowledging a lot of messiness. So uh, it's a real roundabout way of not answering your question, but sort yeah. of trying to answer <laughs> but it. But I mean, looping it back to the question, because yeah. it is related, yeah. uh, you know, there's that sense of the ideal. But if the ideal cannot be attained, yes. for whatever reason, whether that is you yeah. are in a relationship as a Christian with a bisexual woman, yeah. you both, uh, you know, is, is that the wiggle room that Martin Luther might offer there? Yeah. Is that the wiggle room that is then afforded to that Christian couple yeah. to stay religious yeah. and then uh, still have that sense of faith. Yeah. Um, I think so because I mm. think um, I like personally have, um, you know, impulses, uh, conflicts within myself that, you know, I would say are troublesome for my Christian faith, right? Mm. But the Bible actually says, "Well, that's true of everybody. Mm. Everybody has that. In some, it might it might be anger. It might be a kind of addiction to alcohol. It might be like whatever, you know. Um, and so, I might simultaneously be like, I don't think this is great, um, and I'm wrestling with it. Mm. But I don't think it excludes me from relationship with God." Um, that's different from I'm just going to go with how I feel whenever I want because, you know, I'm just basically mm. an evolved animal who and will live by instinct. Like I said before, Jesus' hardest teaching is love your enemy. That's not natural. Mm. There's nothing less natural than that. Like the most natural thing in the world is to go, I hate my enemy. I'm going to kill my enemy. Mm. Um, I'm not going to forgive my enemy. I'm not going to give good gifts to my enemy. So the the message of Jesus is sort of like, don't always just go with what you're feeling. Um, but actually, if you want to live in a higher plane, like sometimes resist um, and actually try to conform to the ideal um, because it's better for you and it's better for other people. I fail to love my enemies, right? Like sometimes, you know, someone throws some fire about my book or something like that, or someone close to me betrays me. Like I feel pretty dirty about it, mm. right? And I, you know, wish bad things for them. Mm. Um, but I, at the same time, you know, I'm like, I feel totally justified in that feeling while also, and I acknowledge that I feel that, right? Mm. I'm honest about it. I'm not trying to pretend it's not there. It's there, but I'm also like, you know, at some point, I want to get to a place where I don't want to hit that person with my car. Mm, yeah. You know, I'm not there yet, <laughs> but at some point I want to be. And I know God is big enough and patient enough. If I'm honest with God, you know, God respects that and goes, yeah, it's not great that you want to murder that person. I'm not like mm. super happy about that, mm. but love you and I'm going to, hang with you while you sort of work on that a bit. And so I feel like for me personally, that's where I end up on those sort of issues. Um, you know, fail to make the ideal a fail. Mm. You're right. Um, and I know the ideal is better um, for me. Um, but God is gracious and, and, and kind. And mm. for me to protect that relationship is for me to acknowledge, yeah, I know this is not ideal. Like, Bear with me if you would. So you're really giving yourself the grace 
to say, just to be kind to yourself and say, look, I didn't meet the standards, the ideal standards, but I'm going to, I'm going to allow myself the grace with the knowledge that God has that grace as well. So just to kind of, yeah, to give you that permission. Yeah. And I think, um, it's really, it's really to accept God's grace. That's right. It's really Mm -hmm. to acknowledge that his grace is big and, um, his love is big and, I might test the limits. I think mm. I think I'm testing the limits. Really not. You think about your own kid, right? What can they possibly do to make you stop loving them? Mm. Like there's nothing, right? There's mm. nothing. Um that's 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 how the Bible presents God's love for us. Mm. It's like you know, and you you might not be happy with what your kids doing a lot of the time sometimes and you might be like you know i really wish you'd grow out of that really bad like dissing me all the time thing that you're doing Mm. but i'm gonna hang with you i love you and you're gonna grow up and you're gonna become more wise and get it together and and god's like that with us you know so you can simultaneously say i love you i'm committed to you i'm never leaving you while also saying that over there is not great like Mm. can we work on that you know, um, and it might take time and, and maybe you'll never get there. Like, cause I, I'm pretty convinced. And I think the Bible, like the Bible's so real about hum- humanity. I think I'm pretty convinced there's certain things I'm never going to get on top of. I'm just going to like, you know, I'm never going to be perfect. I'm never going to reach the ideal mm. in this lifetime. And that's okay. Mm. You know, these Kings with these multiple wives, Yep. When I hear this, yep. it makes me think about our society and our culture and how people can generally be a little bit more ex- accepting of non-monogamous situations where there is a man and there are mm. multiple women yeah. and mm. how much more shame and judgment can be cast upon women yep. who do have multiple male partners. Yep. And then it sort of makes me think about purity culture and makes me think about you know, where are we sort of standing as far as like women as property Mm. of a husband, Mm -hmm. um, women as property of their father, women as property Mm. of God. Mm. Um, And I'm very um, interested to know your your thoughts on that. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Well, let's just uh, say up front, women aren't property. Yep. Um, And uh, I agree. I think, yeah, they're – Obviously, historically, cultural situations where women are treated like property um, or the possession of their husband. But also, um, like I think part of the ancient commitment to marriage as reflected in the Bible, especially the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is actually for the protection of women because in those cultures, um, a woman needed either the protection of her father or her husband. Mm. And that was for cultural protection, economic protection, protection against violence, you know, like um and and that was part of that was part of why this stuff is so like strong mm. in the Bible is because um if it's true that these sort of so-called rules are there for our good, well a, a lot of them are there also for the good of the the weak and the vulnerable mm-hmm. and the marginalized. You see that all throughout the Hebrew Bible is this God's concern for the poor, for the widow, for the downcast, for the 
for the leper. That's mixed in there. So some of mm. these some of these um, patterns that have come down to us are coming out of like a bad place, which is like people are possessions and I'm going to collect them. And some of it's coming out of a good place, which is like protect uh, the vulnerable. Mm. Um, in, in With the kings in the Old Testament, it's a little more complicated too because there were in some cases, like especially uh, King Solomon, it's possible that you know, he was marrying a lot of foreign wives. Like he had 700 wives. <laughs> He's a busy about, guy. About 300 concubines. So he had like a thousand <laughs> women. Uh, to our listeners, we do not recommend this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and, and it's, it's possible that part of it was politically motivated. You know, you mm. you sort of marry the daughter of a foreign king, and and that sort of thing. Mm. You know, that, that sort property of thing. inheritance. Well, it is. I mean, it is like it's mm-hmm. not something that I, you know, um, a fan of. <laughs> like, mm. a, yeah. Uh, but there are all sorts of complicated things going on there. Mm. But it is interesting that the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn Solomon for it. Um, that he's warned that the foreign wives will lead him away from Israel's God, and that is what happened. Um, but it's not that the, the, um, polygamy itself is not sort of seen as the, the problem, at least not explicitly. Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. Mm. It's part of the messiness yeah. that we've been talking about. You I know. mean, surely he'd be too busy to have a relationship <laughs> with God if he's got 700 <laughs> wives. I mean, that's, that's a lot. It's funny because he, he's sort of, uh, famous in the Bible for being full of wisdom, but at like, I'm at some point. So that wisdom went went out the window a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So women, you know, caring for women from this place of protection, you know, also written sort of for the times, Mm. you know, as well. Women sort of really needed that level of protection. Not that women and children don't need protection today. Of course that we do. Sure. But we do live in a a different time. It's a different time, different Mm. society. A lot of those concerns don't apply or don't apply in the same way. Right. and it, it is one of the reasons why I think um, kind of casual divorce is frowned on in the in the Bible. Mm. Not divorce outright, but a casual dismissing of a wife because it would actually render a wife, you know, homeless and destitute for and sure. vulnerable. Um, so for the protection, whereas that's not the case now. I mean, it could be in some situations, but but generally speaking, you know, like getting divorced doesn't have the same like. Um, Threat, yes, to your basic well-being, your livelihood, and and so that those sort of factors really need to be considered, and and this is the sort of stuff that in biblical scholarship, you know, we're unpicking all the time is like understanding these ancient texts in their ancient contexts, because before you can sort of think about what they might mean for us today, you have to understand what they meant when they were first written. And what mm. service they were trying to provide in that situation, because our situation is so vastly different. Mm. Um, and so it, you can never do a simple, I'm just going to apply that text to my life today as though it was written today mm. um, when it was written 2,000 years ago or, or even 3,000 years ago mm. in certain parts of the Old Testament, you know, uh, and that it doesn't make any sense. Mm. And it's an, a sort of unintelligent, unreflective way. Uh, to read the Bible, and unfortunately, a lot of Christians do that exactly, mm. and that's why we clash. Mm. Because I'm like, that's dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why you have Jesus being evangelicals. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So you always have to consider those issues, and that's why it's always a little more messy. 
than we want it to be, maybe, although I enjoy the messiness, but some people want it to be black and white and it's just not, mm. you know. Does it make you doubt the original text when you when you start to when you think about the fact that it was written so long ago and you know you've you you are coming to terms with how the application might be slightly different in these yeah. times? Does it make you think is this the right thing to be to be following a text yeah. written then? Well, I think um, the way I think of it is um, it's a very human text. Mm. It's a very ancient text. Um, and and for me, that's not the text's fault. <laughs> mm. You know what I mean? Um, and I think just the way that Shakespeare has things to say to us today, 500 years later. Um, so any ancient text that's full of wisdom and beauty and truth um, can be of benefit to us. But you need to understand we live in a different time from Shakespeare. We live in a different time from Marcus Aurelius. We live in a different time from, um, you know, uh, Socrates and Plato, but they still have like really profound, you know, Socrates still has really profound, you know, we have, we have a teaching called the Socratic method. We still, we still endorse many of the insights of Aristotle, you know, um, but you always have to like filter them. You don't, you know, you sort of have to understand, well, this made sense in his day, um, but we think of it differently today. Um, and, and that, in, in one sense, reading the Bible is no different from that. I think the, the main difference is if you're a Christian, you believe that these, the Bible is a collection of writings that are inspired by God. So, and the, those two things are true. Like it's a very human text, a very situated text in its ancient culture and languages and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, and yet still through that, there's a word from God in it for us. Um, and so that's tricky and, and complex. And Christians, part of the reason there's so many different types of Christians is precisely because of these issues. We have different ways of handling those sort of sets of problems. Mm. Um, but I do know for sure that the right answer is not just a black and white read it just as it was written and apply it directly to us. And first of all, no mm. one does that. You mm. can't do that, actually, fully. It's mm. impossible. Um, but So I know that's the wrong way to do it. <laughs> mm. You know what I mean? But for me, and this is something that's shifted over time, like as I've, I would call it growth. Some people might call it becoming liberal. I don't know. But, <laughs> but um, the more time I've spent in the Bible and also in life, understanding my humanity Alongside trying to understand the Bible, you sort of you sort of start to get more of a vibe for how um, it does speak to us. It can speak to us today. Like you read the Book of Proverbs, it's like that, with few exceptions, could be written for us today. Like it's so wise. They're just mm. little little proverbial sayings, mm. you know. Mm. But it's like, oh man, yeah. I wish I thought of that when I was arguing with a fool the other day. Just never <laughs> argue with a fool. Don't waste your time, you know, and, and stuff like that. Or, a, you know, a, a harsh word um, incites tempers, but a, a gentle word dissipates, mm. you know. So what great wisdom, like for us mm. still today, mm. you know. Uh, if you live by the teachings of Proverbs, you'd be like a much happier person um, and your relationships would be better, you know. And so 
It's mm. it's complicated, but I don't think it means oh, it's an ancient text. I'm just going to dismiss it like it's got nothing for us. I think I absolutely think even if you don't believe in God, it's got things for you. I think we were speaking before about unconditional love and the unconditional love of a parent. Yeah, even if our children, you know, do things differently or they don't follow our wishes or they have different ways of being. Yeah. You're a father. Yeah. Would you feel open-hearted and accepting to the possibility that perhaps maybe one day, you know, the hypothetical of one of your children being yeah. in a polyamorous or a non-monogamous, yeah. consensual, happy relationship? Yeah. What would your thoughts be on that as a parent? I love my kid unconditionally. Beautiful. Yeah, of course. There's not a question, mm. you know, um, and, and, you know, my kids, um, even right now, um, may be living in ways that, you know, I, I don't think are ideal, but doesn't affect my relationship with them. Mm. And I support them and love them and, and want them to be happy. Mm. Um, so that's just the end of the story, I guess. Mm. Yeah. That's beautiful. Just looping back to when you kind of were kind of leaving that sense of evangelicalism and, and the kind of the inner struggle, you spoke within the book about how it really made you question kind of religion as a whole. Mm. In those moments, did you hypothetically imagine what it would be like to live a life without religion? Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you one story. Um, there was a point several years before this stuff where I really didn't want to be a Christian anymore. And I, I've never acknowledged this publicly. Okay. So I don't tell anyone listeners, right? <laughs> no, I don't care. It's cool. Um, I really didn't want to be Christian really acutely at one point. And um, I went and bought The God Delusion, oh, Richard Dawkins, Dawkins from the bookshop in Newtown. Great book. And um, started reading it and, you know, and I just thought, okay, like it was basically a sort of like, okay, I'm going to deconstruct this a bit now so that because I didn't want to be a sort of um, two-faced sort of Christian. So I wanted to rationalize, you know, the way I wanted to go and be okay, like just sort of basically I wanted to convince myself out of Christianity. And I've had lots of other people, like I've had decades of talking to people from all sorts of belief systems uh, and atheists. Some of my best friends have been atheists, you know, and all this sort mm. of stuff. Uh, and we have fun and vigorous like conversations about all this stuff. And they've never, I've never been persuaded out of it. So I thought I'll persuade myself out of it. I got myself into it. I'll persuade <laughs> myself out of it. And um, I was actually really confronting when I realized I couldn't mm. persuade myself out of it. Um, and it's really because the way I got into it, um, which is basically to become convinced of the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus as the sort of hinge, the test point, press it, and Christianity either lives or dies. Um, and the Bible even says that, you know, it says Jesus didn't rise from the dead. This is all BS. Mm. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Um and that's what got me in because I became convinced the only um, way I can explain the evidence is that that actually, that event actually happened and that revolutionized my worldview. So I tried to convince, so I realized that's got to be the thing. I've got to cancel that out. I've got to per persuade myself who didn't rise from the dead and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I was like, I'm actually stuck as a Christian. I'm actually, 
I can't not believe it. Um, and I know that that's probably a really weird thing mm. to hear, um, especially since a lot of Christians deal with doubt. And I've dealt with heaps of doubt. Doubt and faith are two sides of the one coin. Like they go together. You know, you can't have genuine faith without doubt, I believe. Um, and here I am actually trying to disprove it to myself. And then I ended up like, actually, I genuinely believe it. And so I'm like, I'm stuck as a Christian. <laughs> I can't be an atheist. I just can't, mm. you know. Um, there are other reasons why I can't as well. But but if you moved away from evangelicalism and yeah. you've, you've renegotiated your relationship to God, yep. is it potentially a hypothetical that that could happen again? Uh, absolutely. Mm. Um, for me, as I've said before, the, the two compelling, the most compelling and beautiful things for me are Jesus and the Bible. Mm. And um, you don't need to be an evangelical to have Jesus in the Bible. In fact, that's part of the problem with evangelicalism is they think they own Jesus in the Bible mm. and they don't. Um, you know, you can be a Catholic and have Jesus in the Bible. You can um, you can uh, be a Mennonite and have Jesus in the Bible. You can be Greek Orthodox and have Jesus in the Bible. You can not connect to any church at all and have Jesus in the Bible. Um, so, yeah, um, that's where it's at for me. That's why I still consider myself a Christian. I don't fit the evangelical thing anymore, um, at least the way it's currently understood. Um, and that might change again, but I don't at the moment anticipate a time where I'll be like done with Jesus or the Bible. Maybe that will happen. Like mm. if I'm realistic and honest, it could, I suppose, theoretically happen. But at the moment, it's been challenged quite a bit. Mm. And it's pretty solid still because I'm like, I'm just convicted by those things, mm. you know. Are the things around Christianity, like if you take something like kind of hedonistic pursuits, yeah. something that I think a lot about for us is that we are living a life where we not only, uh, you know, uh, shield ourselves from that, we actually actively embrace it. Yep. And a lot of my Christian friends are beautiful people and, and I feel like I, w I know that if if they were to give in to some sort of these hedonistic pleasures of the flesh, <laughs> yeah. you know how much how much their life could be enriched yeah. in a way that you know uh, you know is is not harmful to anyone. They yeah. they'd still have their faith, but they would have these incredible experiences that they're going to go through life having yeah. never had the experience. Not to say that everyone needs to have an orgy or you know go to go to these things, but it's like. There, there is such a, for me, there feels like this sense of sadness that these really loving, beautiful people with these beautiful community of relationships, we know a lot of um, Christians in these loving, like fantastic relationships, but they don't have an ability to explore that because they've essentially shut themselves off from those mm. sorts of hedonistic pleasures. Well, there is actually a thing called Christian hedonism, which might surprise ah. you. Um, and um, a guy called John Piper wrote a series of books back in the 90s exploring this sort of theme that, that actually, it, it, it's similar to what we were saying before, that God actually desires you to be happy. Like, um, and, um, and the Bible does say, like, there are these great gifts of creation mm. for your enjoyment. And so Christianity is actually historically opposed to asceticism which is where, you know, you beat the body or you whip yourself or you deny yourself of food and water and you, you know, you, you sort of, because you think that that's being more spiritual. Apostle Paul says, that's not more spiritual. That's dumb. Mm -hmm. These things are for your good. 
They're for your pleasure. They're for your well-being. Um, enjoy them. And that's something that, like, for me, you know, I I love music. Mm. Um, this is a, and I treat it as a, an amazing gift from God that I have great joy in, and I'm unapologetically joyous and love it. I also like alcohol a mm. lot. I love tequila <laughs> and nice single malt whiskeys, and I unapologetically, this is a good gift for enjoyment. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying things. And mm. this is what sort of Christian hedonism is, is about. Um, I guess though, for given all the stuff that we've been talking about, mm-hmm. there are also going to be some limits to that. So like I really enjoy whiskey, but I don't want to get drunk. Mm. Like, okay, I'll get, I've got a thing where I'm like tipsy. I'm okay with that. Like, you know, mm. that's a good feeling, but I don't want to be like throwing up. I've done it. Like I'll, mm. it's happened. Mm. Um, more than I would care to admit in recent years even. Um, but I don't like that. You mm. know, that's gone too far um, and taken a good thing and, and you know, it's backfired because I've, you know, misused it. Um, and same theoretically, I guess, could happen with music. You know, you could become so obsessed with it that it ruins your life and you see musicians like that, right? Mm. Um, it's possible to take a really good thing and have it, you know, um, backfire. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is there are kind of limits to Christian hedonism, given the things that we've been talking about, like what's good for you, you know? And, um, I suppose that's what I'd say. Like I know lots of Christians and I've been there myself who just don't enjoy life enough. Mm. Like just enjoy the amazing gifts of creation, enjoy food, enjoy wine, enjoy music, enjoy the, the view and travel and like don't feel mm-hmm. guilty about enjoying yourself. Like mm. and some Christians are, are so tightly wound and mm. so repressed that they can't find enjoyment in anything. I don't think God wants that. That's not super holy. It's mm. actually just mm. not appreciating mm. our humanity and, and that God, like a parent, wants his kids to be happy. Like enjoy mm. it. I made this for you. Enjoy it. Mm. Like have a good time. Mm. So if we were to flip the the logic that you had with your kids, so what Abby said about, you know, if your kid came to you and was polyamorous and yeah. if you came to God and yeah. you said, I'm polyamorous, yeah. will you still love me as a child? Yeah. You know? Of course God will. Yeah. Yeah. Of course he will. Yeah. Because there's nothing about you or anyone that will turn God off where God says, no, nah, sorry. Mm. It's only us who say, no, nah, sorry mm. to God. That's what I believe. Some Christians would disagree with this, you know, mm. but I, that's my reading of the Bible, mm. that it's only us who say, no, sorry, God. God's mm. always, God never says that. It's like waiting, mm. you know, hanging in there, mm. but it's up to us. This It's our call whether we're going to be with him or not. So you do have some sense of agency over your morality? I think so. I think so. Mm. Yeah, to a degree. But yeah. I want to acknowledge that we're human and our human, our humanity is strong. And so mm. I have limited control over my own humanity. That's mm. just a fact. Mm. Um, but to the degree that I have some control, mm. then I you know, try to exercise that, mm. I suppose. I like your balance. I like that you enjoy your malt whiskey and you're living your life and, you know, you're not restricting yourself. And, you know, I can actually picture this very uptight Christian, you know, and I knew them at university and, and I did sort of witness this 
very uptight, doing everything the right way, you know, living such a pure, pure life. And then sometimes from that level of constriction can come such a, you know, a breakout. That's right. One day that can then blow up everything, you know, whether it be a relationship or, you know, just- just sort of who, the essence of who yeah. they are yeah. by hanging on so tightly. So it's really wonderful to hear your approach to enjoying the pleasures of life in your own way, in the way that feels right for you. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if you've probably witnessed a lot of that yourself or yeah. or even, you know, I mean, we see it in, in media, you know, especially, you know, when we think about hypocrisy as well and it's leaders, yeah. leaders who are preaching this and preaching that and, you know, don't do this and don't do that. And then we discover yeah. that they've been doing it the whole time. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. the hypocrisy. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, it does come from a sort of moral code point of view mm. that we have this moral code, you've got to live with this black and white and it's rigid and it feels, it feels oppressive. Mm. And it's uh, understandable that a lot of Christians inherit that or develop that. But it's, I don't know, I feel like the more you go into, the deeper you go into Christianity, the more that gets dismantled because you realize what is it actually about? You know, it's not about that. The moral code is not there to be a moral code. Um, It's there for higher purposes, deeper purposes. And when you really get in touch with why things are there or, you know, um, then like it just makes, it's like, I don't know. Um, it's like jazz, right? You know, like you learn to play according to the rules, like you play this scale on this chord and that's how, that's the way it works. But the more you get into it, the more you realize I actually have a lot of flexibility not to play this scale on this chord and actually play wrong notes. And if I know what I'm doing, I can play really wrong notes and they'll sound really good because mm. you start to understand more deeply how the music actually works. And the rules are just there like as a way to get you into it when, while you don't have much understanding. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, and so there is a way of sort of like going beyond them and you realize the rules are really, they serve a purpose, but it's not the ultimate purpose. Mm. That's not the reason that you're doing this you know, um, and they serve a higher purpose and you've got to get in touch with that higher purpose. And the rules just sort of like don't matter anymore, you know. Mm. Um, it's interesting, the, the Apostle Paul actually says a similar thing in his letter to the Galatians where he talks about the law at the Old Testament, the Mosaic, what, the Ten Commandments and the 613 total commandments that the people of Israel are expected to believe. And he, he sort of likens it. He says, those, those don't apply to Christians anymore, right? And he sort of likens it to like when you're a child, you need a, he calls it a pedagogos, a babysitter. You need, a, and in the ancient world, you, you know, you, you could have a, sometimes a slave, but a, someone whose job it was to raise your children for you. Um, and then they hand, they hand them to you when they're a bit older, you know, like, and then you relate to them. Um, but it's sort of like when you're a kid, you need these rules, right? Um, but once you mature, you don't need the rules. All you need is you need love. Mm. You need to love God and you need to love each other. And the rules aren't, they don't matter because that was the point of the rules in the first place <laughs> is to get you to that point, mm. right? And when you're old enough, you can figure out how to do that in each relationship, in each situation without being told, here's the rule here. Mm. You know what I mean? 
And um, unfortunately, just a lot of Christians never get to that point. Mm. They don't realize that that's the trajectory. Well, it does take a lot of effort to really interrogate, like the the level at which you've gone into the Bible. Not everyone's <laughs> yeah. written, you no. know, sixteen books on <laughs> on biblical sc- scripture, but it's it takes such an effort for someone to to really uh, go in into their belief system and yeah. really interrogate that. Yeah. And something that we have seen within our conversation nights, people who've moved away from Christianity yeah. or religion, whatever yeah. that might be, and whatever form that might take, is these people really gravitate towards a sense of a framework of rules. Yeah. Whereas what we try to to talk about a lot is that our rules are always kind of shifting and, yeah. and changing. We're always mm. renegotiating what we're comfortable with. Yep. But a lot of people from this religious background just need that sense of a framework, at least initially, yep. because they feel safe within yep. that. I understand that. Yeah, I get that. And, you know, is it the cause or the result, like were they religious because they needed that or did religion give it to them? Mm. You know, who knows, I guess. But yeah, I can understand that. And you feel safe as a jazz improviser playing in the rules too. But mm. you you transcend it, right? You, you go past it. Well, at least that's the ideal mm. that you would. Some people get stuck in it. But I feel like you need to dismantle And sometimes the most interesting solos or the most interesting bits of music are are ones where people transgress from the rules. Yeah. The Uh, things that I gravitate towards. And and I feel like for us in our relationship, we've actually gravitated towards transgressing from the natural rules, but to the point where we're no longer transgressing. Yeah. We've kind of created a new sense of a a rule system that has removed and kind of stripped away any shame that we might be feeling for kind of like this hedonism stuff that, Mm -hmm. you know, that I was, Mm -hmm. I was talking about before. Yeah. 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 I get that. I think that makes perfect sense to me. I understand. I understand that. And I think as organic beings that, you know, things need to shift and change. Mm. You need to adapt. That's natural. Um, So I, I totally get it. Like, I think mm. the only difference for me as a Christian is I think there there are some principles or parameters maybe where that um, that adaptation is done best within, you know? Mm. Um, and that that's probably the real big difference here, mm. you know? And it's not that I think it's necessarily better, but again, it's like I'm trusting that – I'm trusting God's wisdom on that, you know? And if you don't believe in God – or have a Christian worldview, that's cool. Like that's mm. that's up to you. And I wouldn't expect you to have the same views as me on those things, but I respect that you wouldn't have the same view as me. Um, so let's let's coexist and be cool. Like, you know mm. what I mean? So what would your advice be to someone who's coming out to that? Say they're, you know, within the church, um, parents are very religious, what would your advice be to someone who's coming out to religious parents as someone who's non-monogamous or? I think uh, what I really respect about what you guys do is the openness and transparency. And I think that's a really core value in Christianity as well, even though people fail all, all the time with it. But um, like it's hard to say without being knowing a specific situation and that, and that's what I want to avoid. I want to avoid like mm. here are rules that apply universally mm-hmm. I'd rather look at the situation. There may be some situations where someone would be ill-advised to be totally open 
mm. at that point in time. Absolutely. You know, and so you play that by ear. But there are other situations. I think ideal, again, appealing to the ideal, the ideal would be that you could be completely honest and open, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that that would move forward um, in the relationship. Um, but the ideal is not always possible, is it? So, you know. Case by case, for me, that's the way I'd go. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation. Thank you, it's guys. It's been incredible. I've really enjoyed talking with you. So thank you, thanks for having me. Just personally, for me, I think you are a shining light and an example of mm. of someone who can, uh, you know, come to a conversation holding mm. different views, but still holding that core sense of compassion. Mm. So you know, we've we have received a lot of uh, negative feedback from people who identify as. Uh, as Christians and when I received that and when we received that often we we can feel a sense of attack but also a a sense of confusion because it feels antithetical Mm. um, you know to to traditional Christian values and I Mm. I, want to commend you for for really upholding those those values thank you and I just love you guys (laughs) (laughs) thanks Con thanks Con thank you for listening to the Evolving Love podcast If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe to our Substack. Premium subscribers will receive two extra podcasts each month, and it is the best way for you to support all the work that Liam and I share here at Evolving Love Project. You can subscribe at the link in the show notes.